Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, we're diving deep into CPG brand Omsom's growth journey with marketing director Emily Chan. Omsom is on a mission to provide bright, authentic, and downright rowdy Asian flavors to grocery stores and kitchens across America. Emily has been working on multiple fronts to help Omsom grow steadily, mostly through organic means. Stick around for the rest of the podcast to hear about chasing sriracha and what it means to be a cultural brand, the two most important content marketing strategies that Omsom has used yet, and how Omsom got 250,000 views on their brand story on TikTok, as well as how bundling all their products together has skyrocketed their AOV. On with the show. Customers are super skeptical, super smart. And when we first showed our packaging to people who never heard of Omsom, they're like, oh man, like, is this just corporate food capitalizing on trendy Asian flavors? And then we tested a packaging iteration where our co-founders were on the back and their photo was with the founder story together. Then immediately folks were like, okay, well, it's going to taste better and have more integrity because of that. Too often, marketers struggle to turn customer data into actions in a timely manner. Simon Data's customer data platform gives you the ability to drive faster marketing results from a centralized platform. Visit simondata.com DTC to see how Simon can help you accelerate time to value, boost revenue, and improve your marketing team efficiency. Unlock the power of your customer data today by visiting simondata.com DTC. Now more than ever, D2C brands need to lead with their why. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Emily. Can you tell me why Omsom? Great question. And for me, the why behind Omsom is twofold. So one, from a brand perspective, we really are one of the first brands like us that are centered around the Asian American community. And the second part is... Um, which you and I have discussed a little bit, is around the product. So there's a few different reasons why our starters are really unique. But one of them is that they make it super easy for you to cook restaurant-quality Asian dishes at home, but they also maintain the cultural integrity of all of these dishes that, frankly, right now in the ethnic or international aisle are pretty diluted, not super yummy. So... Both from a brand and a product perspective, there's definitely that why behind it. I can relate to this deeply. Uh, I was saying in the pre-interview that I, uh, I lived in Asia. I lived in Bangkok for a year after university where I taught at a private school, taught kindergarten, and just uh, had a bunch of friends who were restaurant owners and uh, just learned so much about the cuisine and came to love how vibrant and, and totally different it was than, you know, than, than Canadian cuisine, for instance. And then moving back from Asia and realizing that you, it's really difficult to find those exact, those pungent, you know, kaffir lime flavors mm. and lemongrass flavors. Your, your packs, I haven't actually tasted them myself, but they really, they aim to achieve that, that fresher sort of uh, deeper, richer, vibrant flavor. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. And for each of the cuisine, so Vietnamese, Filipino, Thai, whichever one it is, we partner with a chef of that background on the recipe. And another part that makes the flavor both maintain the, the integrity, but also just be super delicious and hopefully be like something you tasted in Bangkok is we work really hard to have a robust supply chain. For example, we source five different types of chilies because a Thai chili is way spicier and different in flavor than a Chinese Szechuan chili. So a big part of it is both the chef aspect, 
because they have the high standards and then also the actual ingredients that go into each packet. Was it called Galang Gang? Do you, have, do you get Galang Gang? Not yet because it's not thing? in love or cup <laughs> but maybe for the next one. A lot of your goals have centered around really making a, an impact as a cultural brand. I wanted to just uh, ask what you mean when you when you speak of Amsom as a cultural brand. Mm, yes. So this was something before we were even alive and in the market and a brand that um, myself, Kim and Vanessa, our co-founders, really talked about that from a marketing standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, that we would be cultural first, product second. So, you know, if you go look at our social, there's products sprinkled in there because we got to do that. We still are making a product at the end of the day. But a big part is that these, we really view it as reclaiming these flavors and these stories that um, in the past, a lot of these products and the brands behind them haven't had the storytelling that goes with these deeply significant dishes. And obviously it's a little bit of a cliche that food is a gateway to culture, but it's really true. And I think we aim to provide a platform for Asian folks and non-Asian folks alike to either feel seen, learn something, laugh at something and create community. And then along with that, be able to cook yummy dishes at home. It's a really interesting idea. Like it, it had me, while you were describing it, it had me thinking of sriracha in a way, like sriracha versus like a VH or, you know, or something like that. I don't know if you even have that in the US, but, or, or what, you know, this is one of those pasteurized, you know, sauces, spicy sauces that you buy in the Asian aisle. And, but, but sriracha for, ha, has really maintained its, its sort of integrity, I feel like as a cultural brand. Am, am I, would you agree with that? Yes. We actually have talked about that ourselves too, that it has had such wide mainstream appeal like yeah people put it on their eggs in vancouver and in new york and yeah it's definitely one of the few ones that as it's become more popular has maintained its flavor so what does that mean for achieving mass appeal how how do you go from being a cultural brand that, that is really tied to this these authentic flavors uh, to something that is a household name because i know that's your goal Yes, that is the big question. And it's something we're actually really thinking about a lot now, too, as we're actually um, starting to redesign our packaging for grocery stores. And we've done a bunch of consumer insights testing, just even first for folks who've never heard of Amsom, look at this packaging. What do you think it's going to taste like? What even is it? And a big part of our journey to hope, you know, becoming as popular as Sriracha one day um, and still having that flavor culinary deliciousness is A, not changing our supply chain as we scale. So right now we're bringing in a lot of things that other CBG companies aren't doing and maintaining that the highest of bars for sourcing. I think it'll be a lot tougher as we scale, but continuing to do that will be key. But then the other thing, which we actually found in the focus groups also, which was quite interesting, that, I mean, as we know, you talk to so many folks, too, who are in the CPG D2C space, and customers are super skeptical, super smart. And when we first showed our packaging to people who never heard of Omsom, they're like, oh, man, like, is this just big food and, you know, like corporate food capitalizing on trendy Asian flavors? And then we tested a... Um, a packaging iteration where uh, Kim and Vanessa, who are co-founders, sisters, daughters of Vietnamese refugees, were on the back. And their photo was with the founder story together. And then immediately folks were like, 
oh wait, it's actually founded by Asian folks and kind of interesting. Um, some people immediately were like, okay, well, it's going to taste better and have more integrity because of that. So kind of a rambly circular answer, but I think it's that sourcing and then keeping our founding roots at the forefront, even when it's like five seconds at the grocery store shelf. You focus mainly on on retail and, and just sort of organic growth. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you how Amazon has grown over the, the last little while? Yeah. So we've been in market for about a year and a half and we launched in May 2020. So right in the thick of quarantine, of the pandemic, lots of folks obviously stuck at home. And yeah, thus far in that year and a half, 90% of that growth has been organic, which we are very grateful for. And also at the forefront, because we had this community driven approach in the beginning, we knew that we didn't want to at the forefront funnel a lot of capital into paid social ads. And so part of it was first just the regular old guerrilla marketing, let's collect as many emails as possible, let's do a referral program, um, and get the flywheel going before we launched. And that was massively successful, definitely more than we thought it was going to be. I think because of the uniqueness also, where folks are like, oh, wow, okay, this is an Asian food brand by Asian folks. Um, and from there, we had a great organic base to build off of. And two things, or maybe three things I'd attribute to that organic growth. One is amazing PR coverage. We're really grateful for that. And I think a big part is because of our founding story, as we've talked about, and the uniqueness of the product during quarantine. So when tons of folks were stuck at home, totally coincidental, obviously we didn't mean to launch then, but it really made the difference for people who were getting bored of their cooking. And it makes perfect sense that people are looking for, you know, again, these bright, vibrant flavors when, you know, especially during these times. And because we built that organic base pre-launch, because we had cultural storytelling as the main um, focus of both our emails and of our organic social content, the shareability of once a week, we did these things called vibe checks. And they're basically like pretty, if you know, you know, memes um, or other cultural ephemera, but the shares and the directly attributable followers from those types of things really took off. And then as we also saw in the past year, the people are really going to Instagram in particular for education, for activist education, for cultural education. And, you know, that's really where we put our energy and where we like putting our energy um, and talking about things like why Asian food doesn't need to be cheap or why do we still have an ethnic aisle? Um, and so the shareability and the uniqueness of those storytelling angles really contributed to that organic growth plus the press and, you know, really helped continue that flywheel. So you have this this heavy focus um, on cultural content, really embracing, you know, the goal to become a cultural brand with the same, you know, I think of any any of the best restaurants in, in town uh, of Vietnamese restaurants, they're the most authentic ones. They're the ones that, you know, they're, they have the, you know, you know that they have a broth in the back that's just been going for who knows how long. Yes. And that's what, that's really what you're looking for. But ultimately, how, how has it actually panned out in terms of the people buying the product, loving the product? Is it, is it mostly an Asian market or is it, is it more international? Yeah. So our audience has been way more diverse than we ever would have thought at the beginning. Um, and you know, part of uh, one of the stereotypes maybe that we were fighting in the beginning that this concept and that Asian food would be a bit niche. 
And what we've seen is that while our social following community does do heavily Asian American, unsurprisingly, our actual customer base is super diverse, both across ethnicity, location, a third of our customers are in the South. Um, so the broad appeal is definitely there and is a great data point as well as we're thinking about being both a D2C brand first, but then also in grocery stores. So it's good good to have that data now. You mentioned the, a little bit of the, the, the content marketing that you've used uh, across the brand. Can you, can you point to a specific strategy within your content marketing strategy that you found the most successful for, for driving growth? Yes. So one of the most successful content strategies for us has been two different types of educational posts. So early on, before when it was just the two founders and myself doing content, we were doing what everyone does in the beginning, throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall, what's working. So we saw that those vibe checks that I mentioned once a week were working really well for shareability. Um, and then what we really wanted to solve for or create was engagement. And um, so there's two types of content we've seen work really well. One is what our, a series that we call Real Talks, which per the name, um, they're real talks and a behind the scenes of what it's like building a new type of company. So those are a look into a few things as a business. One example is how we purposely try to invest almost all of our creative dollars with Asian creators. Um, another is about that intentional chili sourcing. We just had a heat lover set launch. And part of that was we're like, oh yeah, we source five different chilies and we should definitely tell folks what went into that process and, um, you know, and what, how that contributes to our product. So the real talks and people seeing the humans behind the brand, I think have been one of the, yeah, one of the most interesting points for our audience. Um, and that's more for our existing core. I love this idea of a new type of company. It's something I, I think about often. You know, I interview people from Kellogg's and I interview people from, from D2C brands. And I'm interested, you know, 20 or 30 years down the road, you know, we're living in the world that Kellogg's created, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 years. I'm really interested in the next, you know, 10, 20 years when we when we live more and more in a world, you know, that that is shared and co-created by people that are thinking the way you guys are about Omsom. Yeah, that's something we think about too, that we definitely are aware across many different ways. So there's the content, there's the sourcing we talked about, there's even the hiring process and the, the team culture we're creating. Um, in every way, we definitely try to be really intentional about it. And I think the biggest difference is the centering of the Asian perspective is a really cool thing that I think is what allows it to come across through our content. But as we scale, obviously, it's by no means means that our content is just for Asian folks or even that you need to be Asian to be on the team, which is not the case now, but that it is perspective that understands and centers more of a marginalized view or one that doesn't get as much of a chance to, to have a platform. And it's also what I think the consumers want, which is a kind of heartening thing for, you know, to know that like that, that authenticity for sure. is like, we don't want to buy the, the, you know, the bland ones in, in the aisle, right? Like we, we want ones with this story and with this authenticity. So it's pretty, it's pretty, it's a good example of just, you know, following your truth and having it be attractive to everyone else, you know? For sure. And I think that even connects back to 
the why the real talks work because it's showing sort of like some either the mess ups the mistakes like i think this is everything that consumer brands have been talking about too that because consumers are smarter we're like bored of the manicured view you know the whole instagram versus reality but i think genuinely like even as a consumer i'm tired of seeing the picture perfect image so a grittier behind the scenes or more imperfect um perspective is core to us even our name which omsom comes from the vietnamese word omsom which means rowdy a lot of our visual identity comes from imperfection and rowdiness so like there's elements overlapping each other moving away from each other and there's some dissonance even with the colors but i think we really embrace the imperfections the grittiness um I feel like a lot of brands say that, but we definitely do feel that to our core. I got that. I, I want to get back to your second marketing strategy or your second content marketing oh, yes. strategy. But I, I got that from the first moment I saw I saw your brand. And that year I spent in Asia, in Thailand, and then actually in South Korea for a year after that. It, it was the, you know, everything hit, whether the way, the way things hit your eye, the way things hit your nose, the way things, you know, the way you tasted things, there there are a lot of extremes in the cultures that I experienced anyway. And I and it's part of the real charm, I think, and part part of what I, what I loved about it. And I really feel that in your brand as well. So I think you've done a great job with that. Thank you. Oh, that means a lot. And though, as you said, the extremes is definitely something we embrace too. Like one of our taglines is real Asian flavors that take you home proudly and loudly. And it's really the proudly and loudly that we embrace. And so, as you mentioned, it's flavor, it's color. And then it also harkens back to the reclaiming aspect of, you know, uh, one of the main stereotypes of the model minority myth around Asian folks is that we're quiet, we're docile, et cetera, et cetera. So hence, proudly and loudly, we're here to, yeah, proudly eat these flavors, talk about them, which transitions nicely into the second content marketing strategy around our educational pieces. And a big part of that, it really just comes from, so once a week, we have our content planning meetings, you know, we look at analytics, what's doing well, and then we plan for the week, the month ahead. And there we like to leave space for, okay, what are things that you've just been thinking about as a person, as an individual? And once a month, we also have these things that are basically those brainstorms, which is called like jams, like Asian American jams. Um, but it really, those educational pieces come out of things we think about every single day. And so hence, that's where we got posts around the xenophobic origins of MSG. And um, yeah, and the Asian food doesn't always need to be cheap. So those educational posts are for, again, for our Asian audiences who to feel seen. But I think the, the biggest thing too is that in all of our content, it's clear who it's by, but we also wanna make sure we're never exclusionary. Like that's one of our brand pillars that in all the work that we're doing that, oh, okay, if you've never heard of Lab before, no problem here, you know, we'd love to tell you about it. Lab. Oh, Eric's face, he loves Lab. We gotta send you something to Victoria. I, I need a shirt that says, I love Lab oh because it is, it is a absolute flavor sensation and a texture sensation with yes. the crunchy rice bits oh. and the fresh mint. Oh my God. You really know. Yes, I we'll get it. you some extra extra spicy love yes uh I, what about influencers I, you know you've you've got you've set this amazing base uh you've got this great brand you've got you've got loyalty you've got a following um 
how how have influencers played into your growth? So thus far, we have really just relied mostly on unpaid gifting. And I'd say that was like our strategy for half of our first year. Um, and we started off because we had this ambition of being a cultural brand, of targeting mostly Asian influencers who were in food or also had a bit of a lifestyle focus. And as we've seen our customer base expand, be much more diverse, um, we've also adjusted our influencer strategy. And I think part of that has also been being able to do some influencer outreach through partnerships like Disney, where it really broadens our awareness with a whole new audience, which we love with a good partnership. Um, you you partnered with Disney? Yes. In March of this year for um, the launch of Disney's Raya, which was the first Southeast Asian Disney princess. My daughter loves it. Oh, oh my gosh. Movie. Yes. Great movie. Yeah. Um, great cast. But we, it worked really well. We have a Southeast Asian line. So we did a limited edition Southeast Asian sampler um, with uh, exclusive recipes, exclusive packaging. And yeah, and that was, we were so lucky. That was an inbound partnership. Can't attribute that, any of that to, you know, our outreach. But um, yeah, I think that uh, influencer outreach was really helpful too in expanding our reach a little bit. Wow. What a cool opportunity. For sure. Yes. And I feel like there's going to be, there's more and more of that, right? Especially there's more and more, there's more and more influences from, from Asia coming over, especially in the, in the world of film and entertainment, right? Uh, which is exciting. I know Marvel's going that way heavily as well. Yes. Um, so exciting so could, to see. Could, could be interesting. Disney as well. There you go. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the way our influencer strategy is shifting now into, you know, our second year and the second half of the first year is now how do we sort of shift our influencer strategy just from a top of funnel strategy to one that can drive a little bit more revenue or even collect some emails. And so like many great D2C brands do, we're really trying to build our ambassador program, which we call noisemakers, kind of maps everything we're talking about, you know. Um, and with that, experimenting with some paid placements on their YouTube channel stories, discount codes for attribution, which in year one, we really tried to not use discount codes. And I think that worked well for us for maintaining that brand equity in the first year. And now we're definitely more flexible as it relates to our performance and paid strategy, especially with that 90% organic growth. We have a nice base to test a little bit and also now really amp up our affiliate program with content creators and not just that inbound earned media. Your cupboards are overflowing with coffee, you ran out of toilet paper, your spouse is on you about two credit card charges this month. The truth is, subscriptions are great, until they're not. Reordering can be easy. Just visit getrepeat.io to find out how. You've also experimented with TikTok, I know. Yes. Uh, and we talk about TikTok on every podcast right now. I think there's no better platform just for getting an asymmetrical number of views on your brand. Yes, I know. TikTok is ridiculous. It's A, with the algorithm. I mean, as a TikTok user, I download and delete it almost every three days. Like I'll re-download it to look at analytics for us, but it just sucks you in because they just know you so well. But we got really lucky for our first TikTok. It was our founding story. Um, so it was 
Kim and Vanessa are talking about how they founded the brand with stitches of some childhood photos. And to your point, Eric, immediately we had like 242,000 views. Um, we haven't replicated that immediately. Um, so I think the interesting thing about TikTok is it's not, I'm sure everyone says this too, it's not as predictable, cut and dry as Instagram, where it's like, all right, Instagram is into reels right now. So we're doing more reels. You know, this type of content gets shared. Here are my followers. I built up, here's my audience because I built up this list of followers. Right. The For You page is not like that. It's it's chaos. It is chaos, right. I <laughs> maybe organized. organized chaos, but... Organized chaos, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because to your point, the followers really don't matter that much. And it's more about the random traction you get, you know, based on different content pieces. But... It has been really fun because of the arbitrary nature of TikTok and the algorithm. So we'll experiment with some wacky recipe reels, see how that does, then do more of these cultural pieces. Like we'll translate an educational post on Instagram to like a 30 second, just talking to the camera video. And I think one of the challenges on TikTok for us is that combo of culture, product, and food on Instagram is a lot harder to replicate on TikTok because there's, you know, recipe TikTok is its own channel. And, um, you know, let's say Asian cultural ephemera is it's another channel. So right now we have all that type of content on our, our core channel, but I think as we grow, we'll think about making a recipe specific TikTok and then like an Amsam core content storytelling TikTok so that we can hopefully start getting onto the specific for you pages and thus have more regular engagement. What would that brand awareness that you achieved with your core demographic, you know, have cost you on, on another platform, like to get 250,000 impressions, right? Like that's just such a, such an asymmetrical opportunity for, for growth. And I'm interested to see as you, as you grow your retail, uh, how well this complements it. Because let's just talk about your growth strategy a little bit more. Like I, I, I fully understand, you know, you've got this great base that you're growing organically. Is most of your focus right now going into really figuring out the retail environment and really scaling that? Um, or yeah, where do you see the most growth coming from in the next couple of years? Down the line and into the future, wholesale is our primary channel and lever for growth. And that maps to our ultimate ambition that you mentioned of hopefully one day being a household CPG name. So you walk into a bodega in Vancouver or in New Jersey um, at your regular suburban grocery store and you see us next to Thai Kitchen or Annie Chun's, those heritage brands that you're used to seeing. And so because of that, our mix, you know, into probably a year or two from now will shift towards wholesale in-store. But I think because 90% of our growth on D2C has been organic, we have such an opportunity to scale on D2C too. So it's kind of saying both. So into the future, it's wholesale, but in the near-term future, we, you know, we just started testing Pinterest. We're going to test TikTok ads. There's a lot of opportunity on the e-com digital space too, that ultimately, as we know, will be a halo to that in-store growth. Yeah, and the retail as well, right? People people are 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 watching this everywhere. Uh, are watch people are sucked into TikTok at all levels of society. So people <laughs> yep. that make retail choices are watching TikTok, right? Yes. Uh, and all these things. I'm interested. Have you? So you're, you're very little you put into advertising budget yet. Have you ran your ads internally? Are you running them yourself? 
No, we have a great media buyer. Um, so we partner with her who, and she's managing the day to day. And um, yeah, and so far it's been just me, but we are hiring for director of growth right now. So oh, cool. to what what we're, what I just spoke to, we, we definitely have so much opportunity to scale on the digital e-com side of things. So that's our nearest term growth ambition. What are some of the objections you face uh, for people who don't buy the product? Great question. Thankfully, in CX so far, we have pretty kind customers, I must say. Um, so I'd say some of the objections are on the packaging form. Um, Which is a package, right? As opposed to like a jar. Exactly. So so our starters, our sauce starters, basically are the size of an M&M packet. So they have, and it's all the sauces, aromatic seasonings you need, right, to cook these dishes. But folks are much more used to either having a sriracha squeeze bottle, having a salad dressing, um, pour out, or a scoopable jar. And what's been interesting is because we're introducing a new type of product in a new type of packaging silhouette and packaging format. That has been one of the confusions also. And so one of the reasons also we use that M&M packet that's made of, of film is so that these, so that our starters can be shelf stable. So they're 12 months um, shelf stable, which obviously helps a ton on the inventory demand planning side of things. We think about that often. We're glad we're not working with any refrigeration or anything like that. And it's also cheaper to ship from a DVC standpoint, no glass. That's better for the environment, less packaging and everything, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but yeah, so folks are just confused or like, hey, can I get a jar? Like I want more of it. And they want this, maybe they want the coconut milk in it or something, you know, right? Like that's, that's really what you'd be adding to it in some cases in your, with your dishes, in some cases not, I'm sure. Yeah. So far for all of our products, you don't need any other flavor components except salt and pepper. Um, but you do need your fresh ingredients, which was interesting before we launched, we, a lot of our positioning and some more of our CX FAQs we thought would be around people thinking that we're a meal kit. So like a blue apron, hello fresh. And we're happy that hasn't been the case. So that was one of our biggest concerns. And for some reason, we didn't as much think about, oh, right, people would be wanting a jar or a more familiar format. Interesting. Okay, so that's that's one of the objections. Are there any others? The other is definitely, I guess it dovetails a little bit into the size. So each starter feeds two to three. But, um, but yeah, I think because it's kind of related to the to I want more in one, so I want the jar. Um, and we, again, pre-launch thought that more folks would be concerned about price. So we thought we'd really have to sell folks on, depending upon what you get, it's around $4 for one of those packets for two to three meals. So we really thought, we, we again, had a lot ready to go to say, why is this worth the price? Um, and the pushback hasn't been as much on the value because I think folks understand the value proposition, but again, wanting more. And so I guess in some ways that could be wanting more for your money. Um, but yeah, so those are kind of the two that come to mind from a product standpoint. Okay. So if uh, pilot house or, or D2C were to give you a 50 K grant to be used in your marketing program, uh, right now, where would you put it to use at this moment? Oh my gosh. Well, that would be amazing. Um, and I would use it in first to help starting to scale or first 
I guess, level setting of where we are, right, with our performance. We're getting ready to test and learn. And it feels really scary as a brand that hasn't really deployed a lot of capital to test new channels. We're like, ah, okay, $100 a day, let's start there. And, you know, we definitely have a, a healthy runway, so I think it's more a mentality. So all that to say, I think we're getting more comfortable with the idea that, like, okay, sometimes you'll put spend there and it won't work and that's okay. But so I think that additional capital makes us feel really comfortable testing and learning. And so one, even with just like a, a tiny bit of Pinterest data, we're feeling decently bullish on the channel as in it's a discovery exploration channel for for a lot of folks for recipes. Would love to put more spend there and invest a bit more on keyword searches, especially as a lot of folks go to Pinterest for like uh, recipe wise to, you know, spice it up. So for Asian Asian food. So I think I would want to put spend there. It's, it's hard because even if, if you're spending on social, you can be spending a hundred a day and maybe you're, you're, you're hoping it works in the time, but it might work a month down the road after you, you know, reach a certain level of awareness and, and your, you know, and your, your conversion windows are coming in. So it's, it's very difficult. It's a difficult process. And that's why so it's so important to find those early signals. Like it appears you've sound with, you found with Pinterest. And, and I think on a, on a platform like TikTok as well, I think when you can find, when you can have those good or that good organic base with your brand as well, uh, throwing some ads, some budget behind it could be, could be really highly effective. I'm excited because it's, it's, again, it's a, it's a new, I love products that are sort of new category creators in a way. And this, I guess there are other, there are other sort of pace or, or flavor packages, but it's kind of a rethinking of it in the same way that like True Earth is a rethinking of laundry detergent in mm -hmm. a way. Right. Exactly. Is that true? Or are there other competitors that are really, that are, are the same packaging? For us, we, there's definitely a lot of pantry staples that are kind of the individual flavor components. So like soy sauce, fish sauce, curry paste, coconut milk, but there isn't really a competitor in the market that has everything you need together. And then you just, you know, rip, pour, and then cook it up. How is it going with retail? Like how, how are your conversations going with retail and how, what are your retail goals like in the next little while? So thus far we're in, I'd say about 15 to 20 small bespoke retailers. Um, we are in Foxtrot right now. So we're lucky enough to be part of their up and comers program. And so it's nice to have that early data too of which packaging formats are working best because this packaging was really meant to be on a product page with a ton of information about what it is. And so our early in-store data showed, okay, nobody knows what this is with our current packaging, which makes sense because it's for everything we're talking about. It's a new type of product and it doesn't actually, we realize, say anywhere, what is a starter? So the retail has been really helpful for insights for when we actually want to scale. And it's also been helpful to see which flavors are moving fastest. And obviously we have that D2C data, but depending upon the market for in-store, it's been a little bit different. And um, yeah, so far there's definitely a good appetite, um, I think in more diverse places across the country as we're seeing from our retail efforts. And as it relates to bigger retailers, this fall will be in a limited time holiday pop-up in Nordstrom. So that'll be one of our first big tests of like a really big heritage retailer. How does that go? And yeah, we, we just started talking to, you know, kind of the Whole Foods buyers, the bigger grocery buyers, but until we have our packaging all set and stuff like that, um, that's when we'll be ready to actually start thinking about, okay, when are we going to go in store? How is, how is that going to look? So in the mid stages of, of that journey. What are your most popular flavors? 
It's our Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue. So it's kind of like the vermicelli bowl that you're used to seeing in restaurants. Um, our Thai lob, that one's for Eric. And our yuzo miso yaki, which is a miso glaze basically. And that one, I think all of those two are some of the quickest ones. Like you can make all of those in 15 minutes. So they're the most familiar flavors and they're super speedy. So I think that's a big reason why they're bestsellers. You've got bulgogi as well. And then you have multiple sets and samplers. So how are your average order values? Are you pushing people or not pushing? Are you offering upsells? Are you doing things sort of post-purchase to, to increase your AOVs? For sure. One of the biggest challenges early on was at launch, we only had one product line and our highest price item was $29. So early on, we're like, all right, how, how are we going to get this AOV up? When we launched our second line, um... In October of 2020, which is our East Asian line, we immediately introduced our bundle, which is both lines together for, for a slight discount. And that immediately bumped up our AOV overall, and that stayed pretty steady. And then with each launch, we've tried, we you know, we bundle all the product together. We have a try them all set that to the name, you get a try them all, and that's our highest price point item. But as far as upsells go, we have the standard um, in-cart upsells. We just got on co-op for post-purchase upsells, which has really been working pretty well. And then um, our email flows as well try to bump people up with those best-selling flavors. And we recently did a pretty incredible cart analysis to see which SKUs are bought with other SKUs the most. You don't really have too much SKU proliferation thus far, but it's really interesting to see patterns of if you're buying a lemongrass barbecue, you probably would want lob too. So using that data to help upsell folks in that way. Through emails or, or even web experiences. Exactly. Exactly. Smart. Yep. Uh, I wanted to ask, are there any other, because you're in Brooklyn where, you know, we've talked to maybe 30% of all the people I've talked to, I think on this podcast have been in Brooklyn. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and uh, so these, they don't have to be from Brooklyn, but do you have any other D2C brands that, that you love either as a marketer or personally? So many. Um, I think the first one that comes to mind is House. Um, and part of that is, I think, as a visual brand ourselves and and having a, a good understanding of what we want to look like, I just always love their creative. Like, even when I'm getting an ad, it just looks really consistent. And it's it's the, the product and storytelling is really there. And for me, it's the creative for them. Um, another one that comes to mind is Verb. For them, that is just me kind of nerding out as a DTC marketer because they're a subscription-based brand. I mean, I'm sure the retention's like gotta be through the roof and we're really working on our retention. So uh, I think the way that they make sure that their customers are staying around, even their product offerings on their site are super clear to navigate. And then, yeah, immediately the retention is there. Um, this is Verb Products? Yes, Verb Energy Bars. Oh, Verb Energy Bars. Yes, oh, yes, yes. Cool. There's also the Verb, the hair care brand. Very cool. I just wanted to ask, because, you, you know, design, you, you mentioned, you know, design being such a critical part of your brand. Um, is that something you guys went with an agency for? Or is that something you had hand, a hand in? How did you actually handle the, the brand? Or how are you handling this brand identity? So pre-launch, we've probably had a spreadsheet of like upwards of 50 plus design agencies. And we ultimately worked with an amazing shop, small shop in South Carolina called Outline. And we at the time had a different brand name 
called Oxtail, but it was spelled T-A-L-E, like a story. Um, and that visual identity and core was much more, I'd say, foodie ingredient driven. And we worked, we had worked with them on that visual identity. Um, and that was actually before I came on board, the Oxtail brand identity was already existing. So from there, it started with the name. So the name was all Kim and Vanessa and reclaiming this, like usually Omsom is said to, to kids to scold them for being too loud or fighting in the backseat or something like that. And so the reclaiming and the rowdiness is, was really the nexus for the visual identity um, with outline. And so I think it really all came together because, you know, as these processes go, any brand positioning, visual identity, we went through a lot of rounds, but the magic really happened when we used heat and fire as the inspiration. And so it's rowdy, it can't be contained, and thus our samplers are designed to look like matchboxes. Our website, when you hover over photos, they start melting. Even our wordmark too is looks like a little flame. And um, so that is really when we're like, oh, this, it, it, it holistically really makes sense. And has a lot of expansiveness, which we also have sort of expanded into noise as a core as well. And it makes your fire emoji on your free shipping bar across the top of your website just tie it all together like the rug in Big yes, Lebowski. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on today. If people want to know more about Omsom, they can go to omsom.com. Yep. Uh, and what about you? If people want to get in touch with, uh, with you, Emily, how do you suggest they do that? Sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram, which is E-M-C-H-A-N 68, M-Chan 68. There's so many Emily Chans, but then, yeah, there's Emily Chan on LinkedIn. Fun fact, I just found out that there is an Emily Chan at our place, another amazing D2C cookware brand, and we're both in marketing. So I'm Emily Chan at, at Omsom on LinkedIn, but yes, nice. this was so lovely chatting with you, Eric. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.